2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm here with Dr. Peter Goode. Dr. Peter Good published a fascinating book with IB Taurus. The book is called The East India Company in Persia, Trade and Cultural Exchange in the 18th Century. And I'm very honored to have him here today to talk with us about his book. Peter, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Hi, Morteza. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you. Uh, Peter, this is a very, very niche topic. Uh, EASY in the company has been everywhere, but uh, your research topic is completely different. Uh, And I must admit that when I came across the book, I thought... It was, you know, the usual kind of research about how East Indian Company has exploited things here and there. But this is a different topic that you've chosen. So before talking about that, can you please tell us a little about yourself, your field of expertise and how you became interested in history and why you decided to choose such a niche topic for which I guess you had to also learn some Persian
0: yeah, so I started out my undergraduate degree and my masters were in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies with Persian, and then Middle East history at the University of Exeter. Uh, I started out, I guess, as a um, uh, interesting in interesting languages. Yeah, I spent my time learning Arabic and Persian, and then sort of gradually realised that while I enjoyed the language side of things, I was more and more interested in the history and culture, especially of Iran. Uh, so I did my PhD uh, as a joint project with uh, the University of Essex and the British Library, looking at the Persian factory records of the East India Company. Uh, this was part of a project that was set up by uh, Mark Frost, my PhD supervisor, and uh, Margaret Makepeace, who's the, uh, uh, or oh, I think she's the, you know, her title is curator. Of uh, the East India Office, uh, the India Office records rather. So the project was basically uh, uh, they they came came up with the fact that these records, the, the Persian Factory records, uh, which is IORG, uh, the, well in the IOG IOG, um, <laughs> it's gone. Um, 29, that's it. The, the, given how much time I spent with them, I should really remember. Uh, yeah, the, the IORG 29 series of records basically never been used for anything very much. That all of these histories of the East India Company look at the letter books in IORG 3. Um, they look at IOR E3, sorry. Uh, they look at India. You know, they focus on India. But then the, there's this whole story of the East India Company in the Gulf that just it never really gets looked at. Uh, so they formulated this idea of having a PhD student who turned out to be me uh, to go through and basically try and tell at least part of that story. And for me, it was it was really fascinating. So I came at it from, from a sort of Persian studies background and Persian history background and uh, wanted to try and tell the story of... This interaction between the East India Company and the Safavid Empire and the successors of the Safavid Empire, uh, so Nader Shah and um, you know the Afghan interregnum that happened between uh, seventeen twenty two and about seventeen thirty three, yeah, you to know, so tell the story of all well, what was it like to be. Uh, an East India Company merchant in Persia, first of all, this sort of this story of, uh, of of what it was like to be one of them and I think that again that's a story that hadn't really been told but also trying to use these sources to tell uh, a a or give a Persian perspective or a local perspective of dealing with the company so while this is a story uh, if you like a, a book about the East India Company and its activities in Persia very much what I wanted to do was to find the local voices in this archive and in this record and see how we could um, let them speak as, you know, you could refer to them as subalterns, this idea of subaltern studies. Um, But looking at this archive in a really new and uh, innovative way, rather than just, as I say, um, telling another story about what the East India Company bought and sold and how, uh, you know, English... uh, English merchants arrive, and then all of a sudden, history starts. Uh, I didn't want to tell that story. I wanted to tell something different. So that's basically how the project came about and how that how the book uh, came out of my PhD. Um, yeah. yeah, Is this
2: uh, archive publicly accessible? I'm kind of curious myself to have a look if I can have access to digital archive, but I don't think it's digitized.
0: I th- it's in the process of being digitised right now. I'm not sure whether they've fully finished it. So Irg29, It's the Qatar Digital Library project uh, certainly have been have been digitising parts of it, but whether it's fully available on their platform yet, I'm not sure.
2: So the, the the archive was in Qatar, you said, or
0: no? So the archives in the British Library in in London, but the the Qatar Digital Library have been doing this this very long term. Gosh, it must be for about fifteen years now. Um, process of digitising India Office records. It started out being centred just on Qatar, then on the wider Gulf, and then you know basically they're now then are digitising large parts of the India Office records of you know uh, of all the areas of the essentially the Western Indian Ocean in India. So on their platform, um, they they have quite a few of these now, if not all mm-hmm. of them.
2: I think last year I was just checking the website, and there were loads and loads of pictures and old records and documents related to Persian Gulf and uh, and and also Iran. And I'm not a historian, but I was just fascinated just going through the documents to see what is there. <laughs> uh, let's talk about is the uh, Indian company. So, can you? Well, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. Uh, generally speaking, can you briefly introduce this this uh, company? what it was, when it was established and why or and when did they decide to enter Persia in the 18th century?
0: So the East India Company was founded uh, in 1600 by a group of merchants in London who essentially wanted to uh, well set up a, a joint stock company where they could trade with the Indies as, as broadly defined, uh, basically everywhere east of um uh, east of the Cape of Good Hope, I suppose, um, and they originally set their sights on the Spice Islands, so the, the, this area of Indonesia where nutmeg and mace is grown. And but through competition with the Dutch and also the Portuguese to a lesser extent, they lost access to uh, uh, you know to the spices themselves and decided instead to trade in India. And what they basically found is that uh, English heavy woolen cloth didn't actually sell very well in tropical India for some reason, uh, and that know uh, yeah, they didn't do a brisk trade in in the in the goods that they brought with them from Europe. So instead, had to had to pay for whatever they bought in silver, which uh, upset the sort of mercantilist um, economic theories of the time. So. What they did instead was they looked at what uh, what Indian yeah Indian merchants bought and Indian consumers bought, uh, and then also at other sources of of silver, so potential sources of income. And one of these uh, that they lighted upon in the sixteenteen sixteen sixteen was was Persia, and the reason for that is that um, the yeah, the Safavid uh, state. Uh, and Iran sit on, quite most of the, the major cities of, of the empire sit on quite a high plateau, which means that they have very hot summers, but very cool winters with, with strong winds. And that actually there was a significant market for this heavy woolen cloth that uh, that was produced in England and shipped all the way around to, uh, to the Indian Ocean. So what the company essentially planned on doing was selling uh, English cloth in Persia being paid for it in silver, and then taking that silver to India to purchase uh, Indian goods or to uh, other ports, for example, Bantam in Java, to buy pepper, nutmeg, other spices. They also, uh, once they'd arrived, uh, got a real taste for the idea of buying Persian silk in large quantities, Uh, and there's a long history of... uh, East India Company merchants desperately trying to make a profit out of the silk trade. But uh, in many ways, that was that was doomed to failure for, for a variety of reasons. But uh, the major event really was in 1622, where the East India Company, in an alliance with uh, Shah Abbas I, the, yeah, Abbas the Great uh, of, of Persia, launched a joint campaign against the Portuguese island of Hormuz. And uh, after a campaign which happened, oh, would have been four hundred years ago last year, um, they there was a great conference at Oxford, which I was lucky lucky to attend, where we we talked about the history of Hormuz four hundred years on. Um, they uh, displaced the Portuguese from Hormuz, breaking the hold of the Portuguese Empire in the Persian Gulf. And in recognition for this, the company was first of all granted. Uh, a treaty, but then secondly, uh, and more importantly, a farman, a, uh, a, a document, a grant of privileges from Shahbaz the first to. Uh, well, a farman, uh, basically, it's not a treaty, so this is often how it's been mischaracterized. This is some kind of uh, two equal powers, um, you know, making an agreement and then you know, having to stick to it. Uh, a farman isn't that. A farman is, a, is as I say, a grant of privileges. It's something that the Shah, Abbas the I, gives to someone who he sees as being his subordinate. So, you know, the giving of the Farman is it's something that the company welcomed, it's something that they wanted. But this, again, tells us quite clearly about the power dynamics in the 1620s, that the company was very much subordinate or um, in a subordinate position to their Safavid, to Safavid allies. But yeah, after after the campaign and after the granting of the farman, the companies stay then in in Persia from 1622 all the way up to uh, the fall of the Safavid dynasty in 1722, and then onward until 1753, where a French fleet a French fleet uh, under the Comte d'Estaing uh, sails into the Persian Gulf and shells uh, the English factory, destroying it and then causing them to to leave permanently well semi-permanently obviously the uh, uh british empire then got back in
2: uh you've raised a lot of important points but well, we'll try to uh, unpack them as we go ahead <laughs> uh so so I'm, I'm guessing the main interest of the british indian company was economic activities in in persia right it wasn't to establish really any um, any any let's say uh political or like like they did in India or some other areas there. So it was mainly economic interests that they were after. Am I, am I right to assume that?
0: Yeah, exactly. Certainly in this early early stage of the of the company's activities, their interests were almost uniquely economic. There is often sort of mention made of this this being the sort of the seed of 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 either formal empire in India or informal empire in the Gulf. And I think that that um, is a sort of teleological view, this idea that because this is when Europeans arrived, that if when you look forward 200 years, all of a sudden you have this formalised empire in India. And I think that that's that's missing a lot of the story, which again is is one of the things that I wanted to bring out in the book. And that is that there's no... um, irresistible rise of the company to polit- you know, to this sort of political power or political hegemony either in India or elsewhere that actually the company is one, one of many different trading bodies and groups whether it's the Dutch, the Portuguese, local Arab merchants, later the rise of the Omani uh, the Omani Empire, as as different trading networks and political powers. And that the company is, is really interested in buying and selling goods in this period uh, and feel pretty lucky if they manage to turn a decent profit on it, which, generally speaking, they tend to do. So, yes, their the interests are definitely economic, to a certain extent political in as much as they pursue um grants and different privileges like the farman that they get in persia they spend basically the next hundred years trying to get a similar uh, farman from the mughal emperor which they do later in the 1720s so nearly 100 over 100 years later and basically everywhere else they go in what might be called the persian world the indian ocean basin they are always trying to get these grants and privileges something that makes their trade formal that makes their trade easier they don't want to be seen as just another group of itinerant merchants. They also want to have a, a, a political recognition. And this is true in Persia. It's true in Mocha in Yemen, where the coffee trade is is booming in the 1700s. As I say, in the Mughal M- Empire, it takes them over 100 years to finally finally get a similar grant. And, and essentially, everywhere else they go, they try and get these political... Um, these political documents, these 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 paper. Um, you know, at, uh, Miles Ogborn talks about Indian ink. So it's like this this idea of a, uh, of a paper empire that they you know, they they get the written permission to do what it is they're doing, and then if trouble ever arises, they can always fall back on the grants that they're given. So in a sense, it's political, but only in as much as that politics supports and protects their trading interests
2: and uh, you, you talk about several cities where they're located uh, one of them is Bandarapos which is a port in southern parts of Iran and also Kerman which is more or less uh, my geography is horrible I'm guessing it's in central parts of Iran more or less central it's it's nowhere near the sea anyhow and that I didn't know so that's uh, something that was really interesting to me but can you talk about these cities why would they decide to to be based there, Bandarapos and also Kerman and uh, We'll talk about Kerman as well because you talk about an episode where there were some attacks, let's say, their properties were attacking the city. So I'm kind of curious to know more about these two cities and why the company's properties were attacked in in Kerman.
0: Sure. So basically the company um, always sets itself up in the cities where the goods that they want to trade in are most easily accessible. So in Kerman, uh, in the mid to late sixteen hundreds and into the 1700s uh Kerman wool wool from 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 the goats that are reared in the local region becomes this kind of boom product for both the English and the Dutch and they buy vast weights and quantities of it uh, to then send, be sent back to Europe where it's turned into felt to make hats essentially uh, so it's a good it's a good lining to have in your in your, in your felt hat. So this becomes the kind of prestige, prestige hat lining for Europe over over the course of about seventy or eighty years, uh, replacing beaver fur. Interestingly, after the beavers are basically hunted to extinction, so Kerman wool is part of this uh, fashion fashion trend away from from beaver fur, which is a quite fascinating world story, from North America North American beavers to goats in. Central Iran. So yeah, Kehman is a city, it's just it's north and east of the coast of the, the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's quite remote from the sea. It's about twenty or thirty days travel, so it's not an easy it's not an easy road to take. Uh, and so the company set themselves up basically to take advantage of the wool market. The company do this in other cities. Bandar Abbas is the major port where they have their uh, their factory, what's called a factory, not as in the modern sense of a factory where you manufacture things, but a factory is where your factors, your um, commercial agents live. So Bandar Abbas has the, the, the company's factory. Kerman is a place where they, they keep a house where their merchants go uh, in the right season to purchase wool and to set up an investment with local producers so that they they get their yeah, you know, what what they want from from the process, but then they're also set up in cities like Shiraz, which is famous for its wine, uh, and they have their own vineyard which produces wine which they then export around, uh, basically around the world. And in fact, that's my next project that I'm I'm going to start working on soon. Uh, so they have a, a vineyard in Shiraz which is managed for them by a local Armenian. They have a factory as well in Esfahan, the imperial capital of the Safavid Empire, uh, although after 1722, that really falls into, uh, uh, into disuse because of the political turmoil after the fall of the dynasty. Uh, so essentially, Bandar Abbas is, is, is the headquarters. Kerman and Shiraz are areas of production of the major goods that the company want to buy and, and ship out. So the story of Kenman which is where I, I start my book, is really fascinating to me for a number of reasons. First of all, because it centres around uh, one one English merchant, a, a man called Danvers Graves, um, who was a young man in his twenties, uh, so not very much older than most of the the students that 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 I teach, who was. Basically, sent out originally to to do the work of the company to buy to buy the wool, ship it to, or have it carried by camel camel caravan to Bandar Abbas, and then for that to be shipped off to Europe. But poor old, well, old no, your poor young Danvers finds himself caught up in um, basically the final throes of the rule of um, Nader Shah, one of the you know, the, the often called the Napoleon of Persia, one of these great. Uh, conquerors, you know, these real characters of, of history. Um, there's a great book by my uh, former lecturer, Michael Axworthy, about about Nadashar as the sword of Persia, uh, returned from his conquest of Delhi, which is the probably the most famous, famous victory he ever won. Uh, but Nadashar, basically, by 1746-47, has fallen into paranoia. Uh, there are various... Um, questions about what causes this, whether it's politics, whether it's illness. Uh, Some claim also alcoholism. Uh, So uh, Nader Shah has gone from being this uh, local strong man to general, to statesman, and has now fallen into dictatorship and, and then madness. And one of the things that he does is that he marches his army to the city of Kerman, where he demands massive payments from local merchants and officials. Uh, And this includes the East India Company, and uh, Danvers Graves is left trying to deal with, first, um, the demands of local troops, uh, then loans from local governors, who the Shah is demanding ever larger payments from, and then eventually direct threats by the shah's troops to him the company's property but also the local servants who work there and i think this is such an interesting story first of all because danvers graves actually meets a shah he gives us one of the few descriptions of the shah in in english um he uh when he can't get an official audience with the Shah because of the threats that have been made against him, uh, he pulls a very dangerous ruse by going to the, the military encampment, going to the, uh, yeah, going to the, the edge of the tents and, uh, the walls where the, the Shah is encamped. And when he's not allowed in, he sees the Shah walking across a, uh, a roadway, some some distance away, and he starts to shout and draws attention to himself until actually the Shah comes and uh, investigates the racket. Where he has this meeting with the Shah, where he's granted protection and uh, permission to carry out his his business. Um, and the reason why I find Danvers so interesting, Danvers Grove so interesting is, yeah, first of all, he thinks on his feet. Uh, he's the lone Englishman in what is a, you know a rapidly deteriorating. De- deteriorating uh, political situation, but all through that, his first concern is looking after the people who work for him, his local per- Persian um, servants, the the merchants who he does business with. Uh, he works very, very hard to do as best he can to protect them. It's a very human story. His his the way that he goes about his business is 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 very, is I say, it's very human, and I, I I find it's quite interesting that a boy. Where you are, twenty-year-old, twenty odd-year-old 20 odd from a small village called Mickleton in Gloucestershire, where his, you know, very middle-class English family had had lived. Um, there's actually a memorial to him in the local church. The the dedication from which is uh, is in my preface to my book uh, has ended up in all the way out in Persia, surrounded by the army of the army that's just conquered India and marching is marching home. And then all of this, you know, all of this chaos happens around him but he seems to keep quite a clear head and uh, works his way through it so yeah essentially as the as the shah's um state deteriorates and he's eventually murdered uh then the political situation completely collapses and danvers graves and his servants have to find a way out of kerman which eventually they do so it's quite an interesting story yeah, you know, what it looks like when when everything goes wrong and how you how you cope with that.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Mm, It is. And he was one of the most fascinating characters that I found uh, in in your book that you talked about. And uh, you also talked earlier in the interview, you mentioned uh, Farman, which is not really a treaty, but maybe a Royal decree or a Royal command. So they were given some sort of rights or privileges. Um, and then I guess later on in 1697 if I'm not mistaken if I written the date here correctly it was sultan Shah sultan Hussein who kind of some somehow added some more provisions to this fireman can you talk about the first one the first fireman what it included what kind of rights it included and then what more provisions were added in 1697.
0: Yeah, so the, the the evolution of the farman is something that I've written about not only in my book, but uh, in and a couple of articles that I've written since as well. And how this sort of comes to be and comes to pass and uh, yeah, how it works and how it evolves. To start with in 1622-23, when the first farman is granted by Abbas I, it's very much to do with um, the practicalities of, of trade. It's to do... you know, they're they're interested in um, being granted freedom from customs uh, in order to repay them for uh, their pass in the Battle of Hormuz. They're paid, at first it's meant to be half the customs of the entire port of Bandar Abbas, but over time it's realised that the Persians are never going to pay them the full half and and the local governor essentially can't afford to if he's going to keep up his... Uh, payments to the central treasury so then they reduce it down to a thousand to man which is about two and a half thousand pounds at the time so you know not a bad not a bad sum of money by anyone's uh by anyone's guess but even that is only then paid quite patchily even though uh even though the company has this right to it and as i say very often when Local governors refuse to pay them. They bring out the piece of paper. They bring out this the physical document of the Farman, or we'll send a copy and say, "Well, you have to do this because it's in, you know, it's in our it's in our agreement. It's in it's in it, it, yeah it's a, it's a privilege that we're granted." So to start with, it's very much financial. It's uh, freedom from various customs. It's the right to build their factory. It's the right to actually have the yeah, property in the country, uh, and then religious concerns so if an englishman tries to convert to islam and then flees to uh flees to the persians the persians are to hand him back because you know this the kind of this kind of thing is frowned upon the turn is called turning turk in the mediterranean so i suppose turning persian in uh yeah, in, in in the Gulf region, region. Uh, and yeah the same is meant to happen in reverse. if a, if a person tries to convert to Christianity and flees to the company's factory for protection or asylum, then the company is is uh, meant to hand hand this person back. So the the concerns in the original farming of 1622 were very immediate. It's very much about yeah, the, the commercial interests and then yeah, the rights of the rights of the merchants themselves to practice their religion, to practice their trade, but also to have these sort of pro quo um, exchanges if anything goes wrong, essentially. By 1697, what we see is that actually the Fadman has evolved into something that is very different. And this is interesting for, for two reasons. First of all, traditionally a Fadaman only holds uh, holds the, the, the rights and privileges contained within it for the life of whichever shah or governor or official actually first um, makes the decree. And the East India Company's Fadaman is interesting because it's renewed not just in 1623, you know, granted in 1623, and then again in 1697, it's actually re-granted by every shah in between. So we're talking essentially about three or four iterations between the first copy that we have in 1622-3 and that copy that we then get in 1697. So what happens exactly in 1697 is not clear because these these grants could have been added over time. Unfortunately, the records for the company in Persia are lost For that period, so it's not really clear how it how it evolves, but you get these two snapshots that are seventy years apart. The first, as I say, very much concerned with immediate immediate issues around trade and around personal safety and freedom. And but by the time you get to sixteen ninety seven, you see something very different. You see uh, grants and um, conditions around the rights of children, and that's particularly interesting because children you know the children require women and one of the things that the company's records has none of is is mentions of women the only two were really mentioned throughout the many thousands of pages of of records that i looked through one of whom is the wife of one of the merchants who's already died and then she dies and her will is is part of the company's letters and the other is uh, a, a slave called um An enslaved woman called Mana, who is um, in inverted commas the girl of William Cordo, who's one of these merchants. Uh, And she's really interesting because she's framed, either framed or is entirely guilty of, and it's not clear which, of Cordo's murder um so she, her, her story is quite interesting i wish i knew more about mana and her background but uh, all we know is that uh, is that she's shipped to bombay for trial and then never heard of again so uh, i don't know what william cordo was probably like as a man but uh, if he had a, a an inverted commas girl who wasn't a wife i don't think he was probably very nice and therefore may have got exactly what was coming to him um so yeah, it's quite interesting that you have these in the Farman. You have this these these grants about women. What happens to children if they're born? Well, that means the children must have been being born to you know, mixed families—families families of local Persian women or Armenian women. Uh, I think in one case Jewish women and the local Christian English merchants. So that's that's a really different uh, a really different thing from uh, whether you get paid your thousand tuman, um every every year for the customs of 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 the port that's that's a really human you know really human interest and concern. What else you see is that uh, conditions that don't work. Are done away with. So, for example, the company, as I said, were, were fascinated by the idea of trading in and selling Persian silk, and for a variety of reasons, uh, the entrenched interest of local Armenian families and merchants, uh, the difficulty of getting silk from the uh, producing regions in the on the Caspian Coast, or right in the north of the country, all the way down to the Gulf Coast, the yeah the expense and the difficulty of that journey and of those. You know, of those transactions that needed to take place, the company just end up not being very interested in, in Persian silk. It's it, They come back to it time and time again to try and make a profit off you know, from that trade, and it's really clear every time that it's just it's just always too difficult. So in the original Fadiman, what you get is these rights to various amounts of silk or access to the silk markets, and by 1697, these had been dropped entirely. So, no longer is this, yeah, is, is there an interest for the company to have a part in this trade? What you see is that every now and again, Persian shahs introduce, or their, their um, administrations introduce various goods for purchase for the company. So, like, oh, well, maybe you would like to, you know, have freedom of customs from this or from that to try and just stimulate local, local economies. And that in and of itself is quite interesting. Uh, but yeah, so, so the, the the difference over those seventy years is quite is quite stark. Um, you go from purely economic concerns to uh, yeah, and I uh, say immediate concerns over the rights over religion, to family to local property to uh political uh sorry not political but legal protections not only for the english merchants themselves but also for their local brokers um the Uh, Banyan, so the uh, people from the Indian subcontinent who also act as brokers and bankers to the company. Um, They're local translators, some of whom are Armenian, some of whom are Persian. Um, One group who are, or one pair of of them who are actually uh, half French, half Armenian, so they're quite an interesting pair of people to look at as being involved with this English company. Uh, they all get legal protection through the company they the, the farman grants them freedom from various taxation protection from uh arbitrary you know arbitrary uh attacks on on their person uh, and the company really do um protect these people as well they they use the rights from their farman to protect them from taxation or from physical harm in 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 quite um forthright way. So when one of their, their brokers is attacked, the first thing that the company's agent, the, the the head merchant does is goes to the local governor with the Fadman and says, Look, look, you can't do this. He works for us. Uh, and because he works for us, as you can see in, in you know in in the Fadman from your own Shah, by the way, um, you know, you can't you 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 can't treat him in this way. So they're very robust in their use of these in these political terms, but yeah, the fanman's evolution over the course of, as I say, not just the two copies that we have, but also over the reigns of various shahs is is really fascinating to me because it just keeps on getting renewed over and over again, and um, yeah, evolves in yeah really quite telling and interesting ways. It tells us a lot about the company, but also about the Persians themselves. And as I said to you earlier that was a story i really wanted to tell uh
2: and 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 another question let's talk about the people who work for the company so there were british people and 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 there were some iranians as well were there other europeans as well apart from the british people working for the company and in the records that you studied did you find any evidence that these people did regular business or had engagement with ordinary Persians in uh, in the eighteenth century, apart from the, uh, you know, the, the the merchants or the um, people who were in the in the government's administration.
0: Sure. So I mean, they they trade with all sorts of people, but they tend to be my impression, at least, is that the company are kind of wholesalers, so they sell. European cloth in, in bulk to merchants who then take it up up country to the to the Iranian plateau to sell in other cities, or they buy wine or wool in bulk to then bring it back to be sold on. So I don't I don't get the impression, although there are some some instances where it kind of points to individual merchants doing this, that the company has its factory, which is a big building with a large warehouse where. Uh, fairly wealthy merchants come to trade in these, you know in bulk in these goods. But I don't think that in 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 the the, the bazaar of Bandar Abbas there was probably a you know a, an East India Company stall or East India Company shop that people went to for sort of day to day, you know, more day to day things. I think if you wanted to buy English cloth, you bought it by the you know by the bale rather than by the by the yard. Um, that's my impression of that. Although, as I say, there are. In, instances of individual merchants being censured for doing just that so one one of the company's military officers a lieutenant buys a a job lot of rice in India and ships it to Persia and then tries to sell it in the bazaar and uh, the company merchants uh, because you could turn a good profit on rice it turns out um, the company merchants are scandalized by this and you know you you read about how This lieutenant is censured for for daring to go out into the bazaar and sell, you know, just sort of sell rice by the bag to local people. It's obviously not the done thing. Um, In terms of the people who work for the company, it's really very multinational. It's a core of probably never more than 10, very rarely more than probably five uh, English, British, later British uh, merchants who carry out the company's business. There's a garrison for the factory, which is made up sometimes of European soldiers solely, but very rarely, but often a mix of uh, English or British and soldiers who are uh, from uh, the subcontinent, so soldiers that come from uh, mixed Portuguese and Indian households, for example, and families, uh, or local sepoys, local, local, locally raised Indian Indian troops. So there's there's not just a yeah there's there's definitely not an ethnic. Yeah, ethnic or religious divide between the company's various employers they they employ all sorts of people they employ a local mullah a local religious um uh cleric for some time and it's not entirely clear to me what he does day to day i don't think he's there to lead you know to lead prayers five times a day i think that he he's uh, a broker or a go-between he's sort of a, a significant local figure who's paid a a handsome sum by the company to inter- intercede on their behalf. So yeah, there are there are local merchants, there are brokers who are, as I say, banyans, so people from yeah uh, you know, of subcontinental heritage, usually from from Gujarat, uh, who live in the various ports of the Gulf. So there's significant communities in Bandarabas. Uh, There were significant communities in Hormuz before the the Portuguese were kicked out. Uh, And then in the work I've done on Mocha, for example, there are significant uh, groups of these same merchants who come from there. So, yes, we've got Englishmen, probably Scots and and, other Britons after... Uh, 1707. You have mixed race people who are usually Catholic, who are half Portuguese, half Indian. You have Indian sepoys, you have Banyan merchants, you have Armenian, uh, Armenian translators who were hired. And as I say, you also have these people, uh, they're called the the Hermit Brothers, E-H-R-M-E-T, Erme perhaps, because their father was French, uh, who are half French, half Armenian. So there's yeah there's a real cornucopia of different different peoples and ethnicities, religions, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, uh, Hindu, Muslim. You, know, you you've 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 got an awful lot going on there, yeah.
2: And what was did did you find any evidence to 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 know the general attitude, the sentiment of the ordinary Persians towards East, Indian, East India Company?
0: So ordinary Iranians or Persians and local people, it, it's very hard to tell. I think because they were there so long and they were so established that they were just part of the furniture, part of the fabric, uh and therefore people did business with them as need arose. Um I don't think they could have been there for 120, 130 years as a you know, as a as a community with their own housing and buildings and all the rest of it. Uh, without having just been accepted as part of the community. I, I don't imagine you know they probably mixed very much with with local people certainly with local officials and merchants they did. Uh, they exchanged gifts, parties, uh, very, you know, various social events happen. So Eid is always celebrated with the local governor, whereas Persian officials often send the company gifts and good wishes on Christmas. Um, so there's there's definitely an exchange there, but it's hard to know what the you know, the average people of of Bandar Abbas thought about the uh, Kular Pushan, the hat wearers, who uh, you know, who also shared their their city with them. Uh, as I say in terms of the local merchants and governors, definitely there's there's a working relationship there even if they don't you know, if even if they don't get it on personally. So it's a yeah, they rub along for as I say 120, 130 years.
2: Mm-hmm. And there is another uh person you talk about named with Owen Phillips. Uh and I also find him to be a very interesting character. He started as an agent in Persia, but he quickly rose to the to the top post. So who was he and what was his affiliation with East India Company, and what was the story of his rise from an ordinary agent to a uh, uh, to a top post in the region?
0: So it's quite hard to tell. I'm not. I don't know a lot about Phillips's uh, background in comparison to in comparison to some of the other characters, but he's he's quite an interesting man. So he starts out as a writer in, I think it's 1709, so right at the bottom of the company's hierarchy. Um, and he basically rises through the ranks. So Persia is quite an interesting place because very often you see that goods from India are exported by individual merchants to Persia to turn a, to turn a profit, as I say, the lieutenant with his rice. This was quite common, I feel, that... that the, the individual merchants and officials bought goods that would sell well in Persia in order to make personal profit, which they were permitted to do it under the company's charter. And I think basically Phillips builds up a reputation as and, and also some ability as being uh, yeah, a good uh, a good merchant, a capable yeah, a capable part of uh, uh, the yeah, the, uh, of the company's sort of hi- hierarchy. Uh, and, yeah, he ra- rises to, yeah, finally to be the agent, which is, uh, uh, the, yeah, the highest position that you could hold in Persia. And I think, yeah, his rise through the company is basically one of, yeah, quite a long, yeah, a long career of being, you yeah, know, of being seen as the good merchant. Uh, it's, he gets caught up in what is, yeah, very unfortunate um incident where he many of the merchants in Persia die of die of a plague uh we're not really sure what it is it's described as being a bilious fever so sounds great yeah whatever that is um and yeah philip seems to not only survive that but also works his way through it um he he basically does well and i think i think the way that he then rises through the company is that once you've proven yourself capable in Persia, which, as I say, is, is, is considered quite, yeah, you know, quite an important place, but is also described in the company's writings as being an inch deal from hell. Uh, so an inch deal is a is a, a piece of wood that's a, an inch thick. So a very, you know, quite a thin round piece of wood so an inch deal from hell is not a lot so if you say it's an inch deal from hell yeah, you know, it's it's a really bad place to have to be so phillips um as i say not only survives but sort of thrives in his time in persia and then uses that experience but also as i say the the um probably the kudos of having survived so long to you know, uh, build up his, his career in the company further from that. But side, I, don't, I don't know much about his background. I don't know as much about where he was from.
2: And uh, so my, when I read the book, my impression is that East India Company in Iran was not as notorious as it was in other countries like, like um India, or I, I think in the email that I exchanged a couple of months ago with you that I said that I read this book, uh, Empire of Influence, or all those other neighboring countries that they had established their uh, offices there. So it seemed that, as you mentioned, for 120 years, they were in Iran, but they were not really, Then their, their main interest was economic interest. So it wasn't into military expansion or anything of that sort. And that's why it's sort of uh, didn't develop that negative reputation that it did in other countries. Um,
0: yeah, so, so so Persia again. This is why the, the story of Persia is so interesting to me. Um, is that, that there's not this reputation of the company as this kind of rapacious overlord that yeah uh, you, know, you get from India and elsewhere. They never they never gain that kind of political political influence in, in Iran. Later, the British Empire, once it becomes a far more formalized body, and uh, obviously the company is is a part of that, um, they exert a lot of influence over over the Qajar dynasty. Certainly, when it comes to uh, constant British concerns around the safety of India from the encroachment of the Russian Empire and Iran is very much uh, a part of that story. But certainly before 1800, I think the, the, the company as a rule is outside of India, certainly, um, is, is very much concerned with these 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 economic questions. As I say, there's, there's an interesting social and political um, exchange that goes on. But as I say, there, there's probably never more than 10 Englishmen in Persia at any given time. So the idea that you're going to be able to exert the kind of influence that they do in, in India, for example, is never going to happen. It's, yeah, <laughs> it'd be very, very difficult to, to try and dominate a, an empire of nine million people with 10 merchants who are busy buying wool in the mountains. I think, I think it would, uh, uh, yeah, we've, there's a very, very different story here. And that's why, as I say, I think, yeah, the, the, the book is so important because it's telling this story about the company, not not with this teleological view of, of of sort of domination and empire as the as the as the end point, but that actually the company the company leave Persia more or less uh, out by, by being forced by by so the destruction of the factory by the French. Certainly, the economic importance of Persia for the uh, for the company has waned by that point, but. Uh, it's hard to know what would have happened had the Comte de Stein not sailed into the Gulf and destroyed the factory. Um,
2: is there uh, before we end this interview? I'm, I'm keen to know if there is. What's the next step? What's the next project you're working on? I know that you have a very exciting episode ahead of you, an uh, exciting journey. So I'm 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 really interested to know more about that and also the projects you're thinking of uh, doing in the next couple of years.
0: Sure. Yeah. No. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm preparing myself to move to uh, Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo University of Foreign Studies, where I will be uh, completing a two-year fellowship uh, through the the Japan Society of the Promotion of Science, uh, looking at the trade and exchange of Persian wine and Persian wine culture throughout the Indian Ocean world. So. This was something that I touch on in the book, that the company produces its own wine in Persia and sells it and gives it as gifts basically everywhere they go. It's a a huge part of what what they do in Persia is maintaining a vineyard and selling the wine. And yet, other than some sort of very famous remnants, for example, the name of Shiraz as a grape, we know very, very little about the trade in Persian wine. Very recently, Rudy Matte wrote a, a, history of, uh, a history of alcohol in, alcohol. in, in the New Yeah, world. Um, I think I have um, the
2: book. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: called kind of The Tapping on the Wine Shop door? is it? I can't remember. The it's, VT, uh, right? Yeah, when the
2: angels knock at the... Which is that famous Persian poem.
0: Yeah, well, I can't
2: yeah. remember that. They drink they Last yeah, night, the angels knocked uh, at the tavern's door. The, yeah, the
0: wine house door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wine shop store. Yeah, wine shop, wine house. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, he's 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 sort of um, telling a bit of that story in terms of consumption. But basically, what I'm trying to do is is not only trace the uh, the archival record of the sale of wine, not by just by Europeans but by local merchants, but also the cultural impact of this. So. Willem Fleur very rightly and again quite famously has said that, you know, in comparison to India or the Ottoman Empire, that Persia was dead poor. And in many ways it was. It was a, a far less economically significant place. But what I and well and others in this idea of the Persian world are arguing is that yes, you're right. Financially speaking, trade in Persia was nowhere near as lucrative as India. You know the population was a you know was a small percentage of the size. Uh, you know, what they produced was much was, was much less. But the idea that you could sail from Bandar Abbas to the court of Franarai in what's now Thailand, Ayutthaya at the time, and give him a chest of Persian wine and rose water, and that not only would this be acceptable to him, but he would know what it was, tells you an awful lot about trade and exchange. But, but how does it get there? How does, how does the king of Thailand, of Siam know where Persia is, care where Persia is, uh, and certainly why does he care about being given wine or rose water as a gift? In fact, I did some research recently preparing for this about the East India Company's settlement in um, Vietnam, where rose water was a standard part of the gifts that they gave. And the vast majority of that, I, I, I believe, I hope to find out, was produced in Persia as well. So not only am I looking at the archival record of, of where it was bought and sold by, by European companies, uh, but I also hope to look at museum collections of the wine bottles themselves, uh, rose water shakers. The Persian wine bottles have a very distinctive shape, and you can see it in, in artwork throughout the Safavid period. There's these beautiful shapes. Shaped bottles with, with long narrow necks, um, and they turn up everywhere. They're in museum collections in Europe, North America, around the Indian Ocean world. Um, I haven't spotted any in my my to be host country in Japan yet, but uh, I, I'm really hoping I find one uh, because it just goes to show that, as I say, the cultural impact, the cultural importance of. Persia, of Persian wine, specifically in rose water, more you know, as part of that, uh, is not just economic. It's also stylistic, it's artistic, it's cultural. Um, yeah, you know, there's 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 a big story to be told there, I think, and uh, yeah, I'm going to spend the two year next two years, trying to tell it.
2: Sounds like a very very fascinating project, and I certainly hope to be able to talk to you about your uh, future monograph book when, whenever it's out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I look forward to talking to you about it too.
2: Peter, good. Thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.